First, I want to give copious thanks to everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Sorry it's been so long since my last episode. If you're new to Logically Critical and this is your first episode, I'd ask that you give some other episodes a listen before you make up your mind. I'm kind of all across the board. For existing listeners, I said I was going to move my server and I did. I found a way that I thought wouldn't require anything from anyone. However, then I got some feedback that my feed started showing up twice in iTunes. This was unexpected and I apologize for any inconvenience this may have caused. I'll keep the other site up for a while and the feed's in sync, but eventually I'm going to shut the old site down. If you don't hear anything from me on this, then you're on the new feed. Thanks also, everyone, for the great feedback and show topic suggestions. At the rate I'm going now, it'll honestly take me well over a year to get to all of them. I do want to point out that one of my self-imposed restrictions is to not require me to quote other sources or statistics. So if you do have a suggestion, that's great. Please send it to me. But if it's something like compare the history of Jesus to Confucius, then I probably won't do it because that requires me to rely on historical data that may or may not be true. But on to this episode, which is actually from a listener's suggestion. This isn't about serious social issues, but will hopefully be entertaining and provoke some thought. The future. For some, it means a world of subdermal biomechanical cell phone implants, allowing them to be even more annoying when they take cell phone calls at the Taco Bell of the future. For others, it's whizzing around in a flying car to get to work. Then as a Uridian freighter smashes into your driver's side door, you suddenly realize that if the average person has a problem navigating in 2D space, a third dimension is going to be at least 50% more difficult, if not more. Still others see the future as simply surviving the night as they pray to their porcelain god and swear never to mix Long Islands and Goldschlager again. And yet others envision a world in flames as we learn to kill each other in new and exciting ways, thus bringing the end of days predicted in Revelations one step closer. But one thing is perhaps certain. We'll live longer. As our understanding of health and science progress, several factors will extend our lifespan from somewhere around 80 to, well, who knows? Eventually, after thousands of years, we may very well live to be 500 years old or even a thousand ourselves. I mean, if it's good enough for the Keebler elves, it's good enough for us. Yeah, we'll go through more pet dogs than a Korean steakhouse, But time will harden our hearts, like Quarterflash said, and the many benefits of being older than Hume Cronin will come to fruition. Why, at least every 40 years, your old pants will be back in style. I seriously doubt this will be an immediate process where one day all children born live ten times their parents' lifespan. Our lifespans will gradually increase over the centuries, where each generation lives ten to thirty years longer. At whatever point that we start to live to be 500, an 80-year-old won't look like what we currently think of as an 80-year-old. Dust. Instead you'll probably look comparable to a, say, a 30-year-old by our current primitive aging standards. It would only be around your 450th birthday that you'd start to take on the appearance of a sun-dried burlap sack. We would owe our youthful appearance to discoveries by the Pons Institute for the Advancement of Moisturization and Eyeliner Technology. But how could this possibly happen? Well, we seem to think the average age of people in the past was around 30, and we've managed to get up to 70. But how could we go from 70 to 500? Since I can't foresee what new developments will arise, as we currently are, I see two major factors that will contribute to this. Science and more science. Or rather, better traditional medical science and genetic science. Related to traditional medical science. As we learn more, we'll obviously learn how to cure more diseases. I'm not certain I believe we'll ever be immune to all diseases, but we certainly die from less disease today than we did 100 years ago, or at least that's what our government would have us believe. 
and I presume the same will be true in a hundred years, and so on and so on. In addition, after 47 more generations of eggs are bad for you, eggs are good for you, eggs are bad for you, eggs are good, they're bad, they're good, we'll finally know the answer. As a result, we might actually know what constitutes a good diet. Just for the record, I suspect it'll be on a per-individual basis, and there is no globally good diet. I'm hoping for it to turn out to be martinis and butterfingers for me. But we'll also be able to solve just more general health problems such as high blood pressure, accidental gamma radiation overdoses, and a bullet lodged in the shoulder after robbing a liquor store. At this point, robotic doctors will perform thrombosed hemorrhoid lancing, resulting in reduced humiliation. Maybe we'll be able to reconstruct someone after jumping off an interstate bridge and getting hit by a geometro full of ornery Civil War recreationists. And maybe we'll finally have a cure for eczema. But in addition to those more mundane advances, we'll also gain a wider understanding of genetics. Hell, at some point, maybe we'll learn that DNA isn't sh It's the subatomic particles in DNA that really give it a kick. We will eventually master those sequences of CTAG, and in doing so, I have no doubt we will unlock the key to semi-immortality. Yes, everyone's afraid of cloning humans, or if not afraid, they seem to think it crosses a line. Seems like we're entering His Holiness's territory, and maybe he'll pull another Tower of Babel on us if we keep going. Some people seem to think that we'll either create Hitler too, another Keanu Reeves, or even the Antichrist. As a side, I don't get the whole fear of Antichrist thing. Supposedly, the appearance of the Antichrist is a harbinger of the end of days, and it's not until then that humanity will truly be saved. So being afraid of his coming is like running from a can opener when you're hungry. You won't eat until the can is open. You won't be saved until the Antichrist appears and does whatever his thing is. At least that's what Left Behind taught me. Anyway, back to genetics. The U.S. has some, in my opinion, arcane laws to prevent certain types of genetic research. Whatever. The scientists will just go somewhere else and create their four-assed monkeys. Another country will get the taxes and access to their glorious research. Someone will make a hideous creature that incessantly begs to be killed. Another Joseph Mengele will perform twisted experiments on his creations, and it'll all be legal because they're clones and they have no rights. That's the downside. But how will you childless mothers out there feel when the doctor says your husband is going to lose his left testicle to cancer, or a tragically ending car door slamming contest? But they have the ability to grow him a new one. One that will be his nut. A fresh pecan created from his own DNA. Well, maybe you're afraid your child will be born with antlers and a soul as black as Snow White's hair. So you might not want to go that route and decide being childless is preferable for being responsible for unleashing a monster onto future society. Either for the child or society's sake. Okay, I can buy that. No one wants history to record them as the parents of an abomination. And again, you don't hear much about Joseph Merrick's parents. Or Joseph Merrick himself, for that matter. But what if you learn you have pancreatic cancer? If doctors could grow you a new pancreas from your own genetic material guaranteed not to be rejected, would you rather die for your beliefs in genetic research? I imagine if you're listening to this, you're probably fairly practical and would rather take your chances with a cloned organ. So for no other reason than organ farming, genetic research will continue. Eventually, we'll get it down so it's as simple as injecting heroin into the webbing of your toes if that's your bag. Philip Morris and Anheuser-Busch would love this. You can smoke and drink yourself to near death, and instead of shelling out millions in lawsuits, they just shell out thousands for lung and liver transplants. After we've been replacing organs in people that have life-threatening illnesses for a few decades, you'll have generations growing up that never knew a world without substitutional organs. These children will go up not thinking genetics is odd or dangerous. Instead, they'll just push the envelope even further, 
but they'll still have some opposition and the occasional brundlefly to keep them from going too fast. Solid food is painful to brundlefly. Soon genetics will glide into new areas where no one could possibly argue, preventing blind albino crack babies from dying of weak immune systems. We can already detect many problems before birth. Unfortunately, in many cases, all we can do is offer a shoulder for the proud almost parents to cry on, as well as inform them of the special needs their child will have. Think of a future where we could actually do something for a change. Maybe, if detected early enough, we could correct the problem DNA inside the unborn. And this raises several scary issues since you're actually talking about altering the DNA. If you make one mistake, it could really make Jerry Springer Jr. 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 4000 interesting as the blood test will no longer be able to confirm who is really the father. Or the mother, for that matter. But this is going to save the life of a negative-aged baby. Who could argue with that? No one. That's who. Possibly the Amish. Cities will rise and fall. Still more generations will grow up with genetic alterations. There will be numerous people that owed their liver or their eyes or their very life to genetics. These people won't think it odd when Dr. Earl Schreib starts advertising that he'll ensure any child has blue hair and blonde eyes for just $49.95. You'll hope that transposition was a joke. If we can pigment an entire albino pre-baby, why can't we give it green eyes? Maybe naturally curly hair. Nothing wrong with that. These aren't major changes. We're still humans, right? It's just that now we can ensure the survival of the Aryan race. And if there's nothing wrong with eye color, what's wrong with improving young Adolf's immune system? We can't make him superhuman, but we can make him less likely to contract squatting deer tick syndrome. That's not playing God yet. We're just staying healthy. Oh, and we can slow down his aging so he'll live just a little longer. Ooh, and we can make him a little stronger and increase his fat-burning abilities and maybe increase his mental capacity. We don't want to play God, but just making a few improvements. That's not so bad, is it? I mean, we're not engineering a race of retarded Eskimos for slaves. Hmm. I suspect that is how the next few hundred years of mankind's medical future will play out. If we don't blow each other up or Bruce Willis decides not to give his life when a hunk of interstellar debris moseys toward us. We'll ease into genetics, and we'll slowly increase the average age from around 80 to 500, then eventually 600, then 1,000. Won't there be a limit to how old we can grow? Hang on, let me check. Not according to any website I can find. Normal exposure to background radiation and DNA replication errors will certainly be obstacles. And who knows, maybe we'll find that once you live beyond 110, your brain collapses in on itself. You know... The fourth most fascinating thing in the human body to me are these enzymes that occur after you break a bone. When you break a bone, your body grows more bone around the break. It forms a bulging knot. After the break is fully healed, these special knot-eating enzymes start eating away at the extra bone to reduce the knot. My question is, how do these enzymes know to only eat the knot and not eat into your original bone? We may know the answer to this, but it's still fascinating. My point is... There's a lot of knowledge and information in the body that we don't yet understand. There may be some built-in limits that prevent us from getting too old. Just like it has bone-knot-eating enzymes. Or perhaps the slight buildup of cosmic radiation sets a cap. There will definitely be hurdles. I suspect given enough time we'll smash through these limits. But there might be limitations that simply cannot be overcome. An example would be... DEATH! But for the sake of argument, let's say that mankind does learn to live for hundreds of years. There's no conclusion to be reached here as it's just too far off. There are too many unknown variables. This is merely an exercise to explore. Think of how much progress we've made in the last hundred years. A 
imagine how much progress we'll make over 500 years. Now imagine being able to witness it. That'd be like being on a holodeck and saying, I remember Pong! This has got much better resolution. I'm certain we'll have other energy sources, computers will be twice as fast as they are today, and we won't have to run the water for two minutes to get it hot. But just because we're in the future doesn't mean the world will be a utopia. I don't think we'll ever eliminate disease. If nothing else, we'll probably start space traveling, and if we don't encounter some form of non-terrestrial virus, we'll either intentionally or accidentally create a new virus, or new ones will evolve from some weird variety of Martian rutabaga that we grow. The age of 160 might be considered what we consider a teenager. They'll move in and out of relationships with no particular direction in life, never their mind on where they were, what they were doing. And the friends of their parents will say, If you think this is bad, just wait till they hit 230. Dying of extreme old age would be the normal method of death induction. Of course, there would be still engineering disasters and knifings to steal somebody's Nike anti-grabs, I'm sure you'd still have lover's quarrels, about which a reporter would use the phrase, and then he turned the phaser on himself. But living longer might change humanity's outlook on life. Sure, we already say life is precious, but did any of you do anything about it? How many people's lives did you save today? Maybe in the future, death would be so rare as to be offensive. We might make a better effort to help others and prevent whatever basic deaths we could. I say basic deaths, such as starvation, diarrhea, and subway third rail accidents, opposed to advanced deaths, such as having a MiG-29 jet fighter hit you in the eye or being trampled by a circus elephant stampede. But of course, there would be problems. Serious problems. The most obvious would be a problem we're arguably suffering from right now. No, not, not colon polyps, but a population problem. Where are we going to put all these semi-immortal bastages as well as get food and plastic for them? Right now, more people are born than die. I think it's around three births for each death, but don't quote me on that. That's a statistic, and so it's probably full of shit. But imagine if it were 2,000 births for each death, simply because deaths were so rare. Man, getting food for all these people becomes a major issue, in addition to materials for clothes and iPods. Mines and cornfields take up space, as well as the people themselves. Could we get to a point where every square meter on Earth is either a place to live, a source of raw materials, a place to process slash use said materials, or a place to sell them? I mean, we'll have flying cars by then, so you won't need roads or bike trails or landfills. We might end up with floating factories in the sea just because there's no land left. I imagine that locations will do multiple duties. An apartment complex will have both a catheter factory and a lettuce hydroponics farm in the 30 underground floors, and the roof will be used for harvesting Captain Crunch and safflower seeds. I guess animals will be relegated to the ocean and subterranean zoos. I mean, it's us or them, and I'm not going to let some three-toed sloth prevent me from living my life. This reminds me of an H.R. Giger painting called The Birth Machine. Go look it up. Since we're already starting to deal with this, I assume that as our science allows us to live longer, it will also allow us to build taller skyscrapers, deeper basements, less mildewy underwater headquarters, and ultimately build a small city on Mars so Ronnie Cox can dole out canned air to mutants for a price. Perhaps we'll even build self-sustaining ships that just head off for another star system where generations live and die, never having seen the Earth, all in the hopes of finding another planet suitable for living. Of course, terraforming is an option. This is where we make a planet that isn't hospitable for human life, hospitable for human life. I'm not sure how much of this we can do, however. Mars might work, but it's way smaller than Earth. That's a lot of effort for such a little gain. 
Venus is an idea, and it's about the size of Earth, but man, I'll just let you check on how much of an uninhabitable rock Venus is. We'd be starting off with nine strikes against us. The only other rocks in our solar system are either too close or too far away from the sun. But hey, if we've got the technology to live for 500 years, maybe we can put a big, giant, huge air conditioner on Mercury. So aside from the fabulous overcrowding problem that we'll have to overcome, what differences will there be between now and then purely because people live longer? Since it's assumed that everyone will live for hundreds of years, do you think safety will be considered more important than it is today? In our mostly post-Union world, we aren't generally afraid of things we buy exploding in our faces or causing long-term impotence. But occasionally these things happen, and after a lawsuit, the issue is probably never brought up again. I'm not talking about pure freak accidents where really nothing could be done. I mean things like engineering disasters or simple cost-cutting measures taken too far. Throughout recent history, several buildings and structures have been created that have collapsed due to the negligence on the part of either the engineer, construction contractor, or both. Today, I assume the worst that happens to these people is they go bankrupt after being sued, and they probably lose their various licenses. Being killed in a mall when the upper floor falls on you because the wrong-shaped connecting rod was used is bad enough. Let me tell you, that'll put a damper on your day. Now imagine that instead of it's just you in the mall, there were hundreds of five-year-old children, and they all die. If we all lived to be 500, being killed at 40 would be considered very young. People seem to get more upset about a child dying than an adult. Eh, adults are already dead inside anyway. So would accidents rile people up enough so that a preventable accident would be considered a serious crime? Society may hold companies and individuals much more responsible for their actions that lead to accidents. This might make things like cars, airplanes, and buildings safer because failure to prevent an avoidable accident may become a capital crime. All because people are expected to live a long, long life. But safety costs money. Those seat belts, airbags, and collision avoidance systems don't grow on trees. Perhaps the cost of safety will go down once the technology is ubiquitous. Or, perhaps the entry level of dangerous things like vehicles will be more expensive to compensate for the required safety. I mean, you may want to take your chances, but does Mr. Spacely flying in the lane next to you want his life taken out because of your shoddy brakes? If we're going to hold people more responsible for causing deaths, we probably won't allow the market to sell dangerous items. This raises an issue of economics. How would economics be changed simply by living longer? Basic transportation may become more expensive due to safety concerns, but since everyone can live longer, would people be able to amass more wealth? As it stands, most of us have about 40 years to make money and buy a place to live and a decorative vase to go over the fireplace. In addition, you should be saving for retirement. So what happens when you've got 400 years of working? Seems like it would be easier to gain wealth. Then again, can your gains keep up with the inflation? Sure, you may be able to save $72.6 million over 400 years, but in 400 years, that might be the equivalent of just under $2,000 in today's money. But what happens when almost anyone can get access to large sums of money just because they're alive long enough to save that much? I'm not saying that most people will save. They'll probably still live paycheck to paycheck, blowing it on new cars or skeletal excise weight reduction. But many people will save money. This might really make a huge gap between the have and the have-nots. Or perhaps this more easily accessible wealth will make people more charitable. When you know you'll never have to worry about money because you can easily amass a fortune, why not help others who are less fortunate? But if it's that easy to make money, why are there less fortunate to begin with? I doubt it will be easy. If less fortunate exist, then that means that most people aren't helping them.
I think that's an important aspect of humanity. The fact that less fortunate exist at all tells us where our priorities are. Some of us are really selfish. Some of us are really giving. Most of us are somewhere in between. I'm not saying we're currently capable of solving world hunger, but honestly, if we all really, really wanted it, we'd find a way. Not enough of us really, really want to solve that problem. We're not all heartless bastards, but it's not at the top of all of humanity's to-do list. Either there will be no less fortunate to help in the future because money will be so easy to come by that it's worthless and everybody will freely give, or people will still care for material wealth and not everyone will help others. Thus, there will be less fortunate. I personally don't think that future humanity will be more or less charitable, but about the same. I suspect our future economics will be similar to today's economy in that we'll still be driven by money, only it'll be more complex. How can I say that? I was going to go into how the need for money could go away with replicators and machines that make and repair machines and the philosophy and ethics of that, but man, that is a massive topic unto itself. So for now, let's just assume that we'll still have a money-based economy in the future. How do you think companies would be run in a world where Methuselah is but a wee lad? I'm not saying I'm for or against big business, but it appears to me that many Fortune 500 businesses are run by a board of directors that are primarily focused on profits. Often the board is far removed from what the company actually does, and they are just looking to further increase their wealth. I'm not certain what drives these people. I mean, once I made my first $20 million, I'd be a dot and I'd spend the rest of my life doing whatever the hell I want to do. However, notice that the richest man in the world, Bill Gates, still works. Actually works a lot. His buddy, Steve Ballmer, he's not ever going to go broke, and yet he works. Whatever it is that pushes these people to make these insane amounts of money in the first place is the same drive that keeps them in those positions. It may not even be directly about money to them. Maybe it's more of a power trip. I, I don't know. Sometimes these people do good and push their company to new heights. However, it is my opinion that once a company gets to a certain large size, they get bogged down with bureaucracy, short-sightedness, and managerial incest. And that's just because it gets big. I'm pretty sure no corporation has existed for more than 150 years. We've got some real lumbering dinosaurs that have been around quite a while. But what happens in a world where not only will the corporation survive for thousands of years, but the guy that originally started it is still the president after 400 years? This could be good, as the company would keep on track. But what about the board members? They're probably only interested in making money. Imagine rich, powerful men, and women, I don't want to be sexist, lobbying for laws for hundreds of years to make them more profitable. Imagine hundreds of years of cutting corners. As it is now, most of these people do a little damage for 20 or 30 years, then retire. What if they had hundreds of years to rape their company, country, and planet? Again, I'm not saying big businesses are bad, but they certainly can be short-sighted. If I take this piece of lettuce off the employee's lunch, we'll save one million a year. But hey, I'm going to be working here for 300 years. I could save 300 million over my career. Maybe the products have to be safer, but if they only have to last for a few years, they can still be cheaper. Or maybe these corporations could become so powerful that they overrule law and a kind of RoboCop-like era ensues. There's Ronnie Cox again, playing the same part he always plays. Then again, the alternative might be true. If there's no short-term, only long-term, perhaps that will push people to make better products and create a better work environment. But what about the products made by these businesses, such as kitchen appliances, rubber mallets, pictures, music, and two state-of-the-art competing video formats? On one hand, there's planned obsolescence, so you'll buy a new one every few years. On the other hand, with people living so long, would people expect products' longevity to be greater? 
being able to preserve things might become very important. You don't want to buy a new PlayStation 937 and find out that in 20 years it doesn't work. You might also really want to pass along your chest of drawers to your children in 300 years. So in direct opposition to businesses wanting to cut corners, the public might demand higher quality. Of course, the flip side could be true. What if we realize that everything rots so we don't expect anything to last beyond a few years? Only humanity and skyscrapers can survive that long. We could be ushered into a new age where material wealth becomes meaningless because everyone sees firsthand how possessions are fleeting. This might lead the human race to become more respectful of history as you would have lived through so much of it. Hell, I don't need to study about the Battle of Northern Kentucky 5389. I was there! Well, speaking of preservation in airplanes, would having the average lifespan of 500 make dying for your beliefs more or less important? Would someone be less likely to kill themselves in the name of their god if they knew they had hundreds of years ahead of them? And on a related note, what if you're depressed and are thinking of taking your own life by taking a belt and hanging yourself, hanging yourself in the doorway of the apartment where you live? Is the idea of going through your current dilemma for the next four centuries going to make you even more determined to end it all? Or would you think, man, I got four centuries to change my life. It's got to get better. The fact that you're thinking of committing suicide suggests you're not thinking positively of the future. Speaking of personality disorders, what type of psychological effect would being really, really old have on people? Right now, I think the worst battle of ages we have is kids disliking old geezers, what with their pants hiked up to their armpits, and the elderly just wanting to keep those same children the hell out of their yard. It's a 70-year difference at most today. Kids can't understand being decrepit, and the aged ones can't remember what it was like to be so young. Now multiply that by seven or eight. You'll have numerous age factions. People in their 70s won't understand children, or people in their 300s and 400s, and vice versa. A whole new wave of bigotry can sweep across the seven-populated world. We might even start segregating people based on their age. We'll have probably cross-pollinated with so many races, religions, and shades that we'll all be the color of a well-cooked batch of pancakes, We'll need some other visually obvious reasons to be intolerant of one another, and age can fill that void. There'll be hate groups for certain ages. Down with the two to three hundred year olds, those smug bastards, they're older than me, but not as old as the ancients. Why would age matter so much? Well, many people get into ruts and like it that way. The older someone is, the more complacent they are in their beliefs. Remember what I was saying earlier about having a generation grow up with the technology? You see, under our current system, a generation is around 20 to 30 years. After that time, the previous generation retires and yields control to a new batch of whippersnappers. Well, now, and by now I mean in the distant future, we'll have a younger generation completely grown and set in their ways, and the previous batch of daughters will still be in power. And they ain't going nowhere for a long time. Johnny! I'm your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Before I die in 80 years, I want to tell you about the facts of life. I want to pass along my wisdom and my prejudices. I want to pass along my irrational fears and hatred to a new generation so that I know those things that I hold dear will live long. I want to brainwash you so you never question my beliefs. And since we live so much longer now in the future, and since I've told this same rhetoric to your father and his father and his father, I'll ensure that free thinking will be stifled for centuries. Now run along, Billy, and go play with your Bible action fun set. As a last note, you can improve someone's memory, but can you honestly improve their ability to think critically? 
Someone may be able to think faster and able to calculate complex lobster dinner tips in their head, but having an ability and using an ability are very different. I think most people already have the ability to think more thoroughly, but they don't. If the future can solve this, then there's hope for mankind. So now that we know of this future, is there anything we can do other than act surprised? Probably not. Since I've had my fortune-telling license revoked after I told that guy he could do nothing to change the grim future I predicted for him, so he shot himself, I'm legally obligated to inform you that this is just for entertainment purposes only. Please, no wagering. Anyway, like Emmett Brown said, your future's not yet written, so make it a good one. Unless there is some built-in limitation humanity possesses, I'm sure we will eventually live longer than most redwoods, or at least longer than sea turtles. We may be scared of genetics now, but as a new generation grows up with new technologies, that becomes their baseline. The children of today will never know a world where you can't walk around with your entire music collection in your pocket listening to some guy doing a cheesy podcast. Hell, there might be some other technology that allows us to live longer, such as moving our consciousness from our brain to some self-contained cortical stack that can be moved to new bodies when the old one wears out, a la Richard K. Morgan's books. Did you know that in the 1800s people thought trains were dangerous? They were convinced that if the human body reached speeds upwards of 40 miles an hour, it would die. But then those people gave birth to children that never knew a world without trains. And since those fateful days, we've managed to survive speeds of nearly 84 miles per hour. Really makes you think about the speeds we'll achieve in the future. As a closing remark, when I started this episode, I had a specific area I wanted to discuss. The more I got into it, the more I realized what a huge topic this is. It's very difficult to speculate about something so far-reaching and stay focused. So I branched off where appropriate, but I tried not to spend too much time on offshoots. This episode is already damn long enough. Unfortunately, this makes for a little meandering and only touches on areas that warrant much more discussion. I I'm still working on balancing this. I hope this was still thought-provoking and at least briefly entertaining. Thank you very much for listening. Visit our website at logicallycritical.com. Send feedback to podcast at logicallycritical.com. 